0: We're going to be touching on Isaiah chapter 6 this morning in a wide ranging message covering many scriptures, uh, but I'm going to use Isaiah 6 as a uh, touch point uh, for the great theme that we're going to talk about today. So let us hear the word of God together. Isaiah wrote this In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips Atone for. May God's majestic and holy word reveal its majestic and holy God to our hearts. Amen. You can be seated. Well, I've chosen today to do something I've done uh, during a couple of seasons in the past. I want to take the Sunday after Easter to bring a a follow-on message to the Easter series. So this is really a portion of the Easter study and thinking that I've done. In times past, the, the great message of the passion of the Christ has been so resonant in my heart that I felt it was good to follow up one more Sunday from the Scripture about it. So we're going to do that today in this season in which we've considered the death and the resurrection of Christ, as I mentioned on Good Friday, the passion of Christ seems to be the most attractive factor to what Jesus experienced in in his life, death, and resurrection. The the suffering of Christ is what the human earthly eye is drawn to. And uh, yet the, the purpose behind all of that is what God really wants us to see. The physical suffering of Jesus was deep, and it was significant, but it's not the fullness of the story. It's why he suffered that God wants us to understand. It's what God wants us to understand, and the purpose behind the passion, if you will. Many times we look at the death of Christ, and our society has a sentimental belief as to why that happened, and many Christians share it, It goes along the line that human beings are so valued that love had to act to save them. A biblically clearer reason for the passion was this. Human beings have been so separated from God's holiness that God decided to act to bridge that gap and to allow us a way into his presence. There is a big difference between those two ideas. I'm going to dwell on the the biblical idea today that the purpose behind the passion was the great and eternal need to find a way through the veil that separated sinful people like us from a holy God like Him. To to do that, I want to introduce my message by going back to something that I spoke about on Good Friday. You remember I talked about at, at, the, at the final moment of the passion of, of, of Christ, one of the great miracles that happened among the five miracles that happened on the mountain that day, as the darkness began to lift over the suffering of Christ, taking the wrath of God for us, and as he declared, it is finished, You remember I told you that the great curtain that hung in the temple that separated the very Holy of Holies, the place where God's presence would come and dwell, where the mercy seat was, where the Ark of the Covenant was, that separated the place of His presence from from the outer dimension, the holy place, and then from the outer courtyard where all the people were. It was blocked by a solid curtain. Do you remember that, those of you who were with us? It was a curtain that ran up 60 feet high, believe it or not, 30 feet wide. So it essentially bridged this platform and went 60 feet straight up. It was made out of solid woven material. Josephus, the historian says it was as thick as the width of a man's hand, solidly woven. It weighed hundreds, if not thousands of pounds. It hung from the very top of the the enclosed holy place. It was all one piece. It didn't have a part in the middle so you could push it away with your hand and boldly walk through. It was one piece woven all the way to either side of the the temple. It was meant to show that God is so holy and we are so sinful that there has to be a barrier between us and his holiness or we would be destroyed. Now that is an image that has fascinated Bible scholars, and it should, because God does nothing without a reason, correct? James Montgomery Boyce, in his work called The Foundations of the Christian Faith, studied the significance of the veil or the curtain. It was first placed in what was called the tabernacle. How many are familiar with the word the tabernacle? That was the tent that was placed and designed by Moses at God's command so that God's presence could come and be near his people as they uh, made their way through the wilderness. Later, the temple would be built to replace the tabernacle. But in the very earliest days, the tabernacle was there and it had the same layout as the temple eventually would, an outer courtyard and then the holy place where the priests would bring uh, the, the, the different elements of worship. And then there was a holy place, the Holy of Holies, and it had a thick curtain. Dr. Boyce says that there was actually three curtains in the tabernacle to give you a threefold illustration of just how holy God is and how sinful we are. He writes, we have a dramatization of the holiness of God in the laws given for the building of the Jewish tabernacle. On one level, the tent, the tabernacle, was constructed to teach the closeness of God, what theologians call His eminence the truth that God is always present with His people. God wanted to be present with that sinful gathering of people, the Israelites. But on the other hand, it also taught that God is separated from His people because of His holiness and their sin. And, and He can therefore be approached only in the way that He determined. And how did God do that? He designed the Holy of Holies, and then he put barriers before it. Dr. Boyce writes, The point of the tabernacle was that a sinful man or woman could not simply barge in upon the Holy One. God was understood to have dwelt symbolically within the innermost chamber of the tabernacle, known as the Holy of Holies. People could not go in there, in case you're wondering. Now that's very unique. He says a Greek could enter any of the temples of Greece and pray before the statue of a chosen pagan god or goddess without any problem. A Roman could enter any of the temples of Rome, walk right in, go to a little niche of his chosen deity and be as close as close could be. No problem. But the Jews could not enter their holy of holies. In fact, only one person could ever go in. That was the high priest of Israel, and he even, could, he, even he could go in only once a year, and that only after having made sacrifices for himself and the people in the outer courtyard. The Holy of Holies, the innermost chamber of the tabernacle, was separated from the holy place, the outer chamber, by a thick veil, a curtain. It was called the veil in the scripture. I described it to you just a moment ago. He says that wasn't all that just as there was a veil between the Holy of Holies and the holy place of the temple. They were dividing it into two chambers. There was another thick veil separating the holy place from the the outer courtyard. The bottom line is there wasn't just one thick curtain in the old tabernacle. There were three. So the Jews had this fabulous illustration of the fact that God was ultimately holy. In the Hebrew idea and language, when something was repeated three times, that was the ultimate way to describe it. This is why the angels call out to one another, holy, holy, and holy. Kadosh, kadosh, kadosh in the Hebrew, calling out one to another, God is intimately and ultimately holy. There's no limit to His holiness. And so the three veils in the tabernacle were designed to show that God was holy and separated from us. He could only be approached by one man once a year, and that man had to have made a blood sacrifice for himself and for his sins and the sins of the people. I think you get the image. The barriers were meant to make a point. Now, what happened if a person decided to ignore the barriers in the tabernacle and decided to push his way around that curtain? If he wasn't the high priest on that holy day with a blood sacrifice made, he would be incinerated. And all the Jews knew this. The wrath of God would flame out against him. So that's an image of the eternal problem that that sinful people have with a holy God. I think you see the point, and God illustrated it to the people, and that is fundamentally the problem that Jesus came in his passion to solve. The purpose behind the passion was satisfying God's holiness, devising a way for us to get past the veil. Does that make sense? It was all about God's holiness. It was all about figuring out a way for unholy people to be in the presence of a holy God. Our society would say, well, God just has to change. He has to become a little less holy. He has to start grading on the curve. He has to lessen His his purity, lessen His standard, lessen His presence. Oh, no. God, by definition, is changeless. His holiness has stood for all eternity. No, the issue is something had to be done to give us a way past the veil. And so there's my introductory image for you. Now, the problem is holiness. And I want to go and explore that with you. I'm going to do two things in the balance of the message. I'm going to probe the understanding of the holiness of God. I'm going to teach you about God in a way that is seldom taught from the scriptures. We we end around the holiness of God and get to the practicality of God, don't we? But God's holiness is actually the most defining thing about him. It is also the most difficult thing to describe about him because we don't understand it because we're so sinful. Defining holiness is really impossible. We can only begin to approach it. Leonardo da Vinci, when he was painting the great painting of of the Last Supper, all the different characters of the disciples along the length of that table, and he'd finished it all, but the part that kept... Him uh, kept him coming back and made the work so extended and took him so long to paint was his ability to paint the face of Christ. He would paint it and then erase it and paint it and erase it and not come back for weeks at a time. And somebody asked him why his work was not finished, and he said, "It's him." He says, "I can't paint him." Da Vinci understood the holiness and the greatness of Christ. And we can't quite paint the holiness of God. I'm going to do my best in the next few minutes to show you what the scripture says about it. I'm going to probe the meaning of it, but it is ultimately indefinable. We can only take a reach at describing it. But this is the way that God describes himself. Now, it's interesting. The holiness of God has been called by theologian Thomas Watson the crown jewel of all the attributes of God. An attribute of God is something that's true about him. Holiness, justice, mercy, compassion. And and Watson said, God wears all of those attributes like jewels in a crown, but the crown holiness, because it defines everything else and it gives power to everything else. This is why in our our text that we started with today, the angels used it to to describe God in the ultimate. You notice they didn't say just, just, just is the Lord God. But it's true. You notice they didn't say, Compassionate, compassionate, compassionate is the Lord God, although that's true. They didn't take any one of the range of things that are beautifully true about God to describe Him in His temple. What do they say now? And according to Revelation 4, what are they going to say through all eternity? What? Holy, holy, holy is God. So this is the attribute above them all. It amplifies everything else that's true about Him. So I want to take you through a, a scriptural journey, as it were, with many passages as we probe the purpose behind the passion. We look at this holiness of God and why God had to solve man's problem with it. So track with me. We're going to walk through this. I'm going to show you the three big ways in which theology teaches us about the holiness of God. There are three things that are true about it. And before I do, let me explain the word holy. Most of the time, the first thing that comes to our minds and we say, "Okay, God is holy, that to us, that means he's without sin. Right. That's partly true, but that's not the primary meaning of the word holy. Really, we would use the word righteous for being without sin. Holy means that and more. The the Hebrew word was kadosh. And I think that's the way Isaiah heard it when God took him in a vision into the throne room of heaven in Isaiah 6. And when he heard the angels calling, holy, 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 I believe he, he let Isaiah hear them in, in his tongue of Hebrew. Kadosh, kadosh, kadosh was the Hebrew word. That's what he heard. And it meant cut off or separate or set apart. It didn't mean just sinless. It meant completely set apart and above everything else in the new testament the greek word is hagios and it also means the same thing set apart separate in a class by itself So when we talk about the holiness of God, we're not just talking about no sin, we're talking about being totally different and totally separated and totally exalted from us, from everything we know and everything we can imagine. He is completely different. He's completely above everything. He's above all things. And now, the scripture points this out, just a couple of introductory verses in Exodus 15, 11, which was read in our hearing today by David. Moses, when, when God delivered the nation of Israel and parted the Red Sea, remember that dramatic story? On the other side, Moses sang a song of praise to God because he had just seen God split physical reality. He had seen the unbelievable enter into the actual, and it was a demonstration to him of the holiness of God, that God was completely different than anything he understood. And in Exodus 15, 11, he says, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods, who is like you? And look at this majestic that's lifted up in holiness, awesome and glorious deeds, doing wonders. Who is like God? The answer is no one. That means he's in a category by himself who is like you, majestic, lifted up in holiness. And so the Bible says holiness means he's completely set apart from everything we know in perfection and in greatness. 2 Samuel 2, two, the prophet wrote, there is none holy like the Lord. Okay, separated, totally different. For there is none besides you. Isaiah chapter 40 puts it into a word picture for us as God's people. Isaiah said... Quoting God, to whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see. Go out into the darkness. Walk outside your tent or your house and look up into the scattering of the stars in a dark sky. Who created these? Rhetorical question, folks. Who did? The Lord. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. So God took them out into the, the darkness of the night and gave them the ultimate physical illustration. And he says, as astounding as this is, I am greater than this. I am beyond this. I created all this, and I hold it all together star by star. Now, the people in Isaiah's time didn't really understand how big an illustration this was because they didn't understand how big the universe is. Now, here we are in 2022, and we know a lot about how big the universe is. We sent something up into the the atmosphere in 1990 called the Hubble Telescope. How many are familiar with the name? Went out into orbit in 1990. It sits at 370 miles above the Earth, beyond the atmospheric filter. And the Hubble Telescope allowed us to see things in the universe we have never seen before. Vast discoveries farther out. It's seen some interesting things, including HD 189733B which is a planet about 63 light years, 370 trillion miles away. On that planet, the Hubble, the Hubble telescope discovered the winds exceed 4,000 miles per hour, and every afternoon it rains molten glass. How'd you like to have a timeshare on that one? It's, it has push back the limits of just how big this universe is. And now they've just sent up its successor, the James Webb Space Telescope, launched in December of 2021, that can see even more and farther. But what we know now that they didn't know in Isaiah's time is that our massive solar system is just really, when you think about it, our the, the solar system we can see with the naked eye is just a small smudge among uncountable billions of galaxies, each with uncountable billions of stars. And so when God says, I have put them all out by number and I call them all by name, now we know just what a huge statement that is. Billions upon billions. Our Milky Way galaxy, where we live, probably has 40 billion planets Earth's size. Did you know that? It's a massive thing. In fact, if you went out tonight... And you you took a drinking straw and you just held it up and you just looked at the small set of stars that that drinking straw would allow you to see that spot alone would contain 10,000 galaxies. Edging out into, into almost limitless space, and each of those has billions of its own planets. Do you catch my meaning? And God says, I am beyond all of that. You can't compare me to anything. I created these. I stand above these. I've named these. I number these and I keep these. That's how holy and powerful I am. So it's not. It's a difference that we can't even put into words. He is totally above us and beyond us. Now, there are three ways that the Scripture says God is holy. And I'm going to go into a little theological depth, not weeds, but depth. There's a difference. Because as you see how holy he is in these three ways, you'll understand what a problem we had. It was solved by the passion of the Christ. Our holy God is separate in three ways. Number one, he is separate in position. I've already kind of amplified this in my illustrations here. What does that mean? I'll put it in a sentence. He exists in a category of being that is all his own. Hebrew, kadosh, completely set apart. Greek, hagios, not with not in our level at all, beyond our imagining. He exists in position in a category of being that is all his own. I've already mentioned the scriptures. There is none holy like the Lord, 1 Samuel 2.2. There is none besides you. There is no one who is at his level of being. Isaiah, as we go back to the text that I mentioned to start, saw this. Isaiah was suddenly taken in a vision, or maybe, we don't know, maybe he was taken in person like Paul was at a point in his ministry, into the very throne room of God in heaven. That's where Isaiah 6 takes place. He was somehow taken to the very throne room of God, and what does he say in verse 1? I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, and what's the next phrase? High and lifted up. That was meant to illustrate the fact that God exists in a category of being that is all His own. High and lifted up. He is beyond what we imagine. Now this amplifies all the other attributes. Like Thomas Watson said, God's holiness gives amplification to every other thing that's true about Him. For example, if God's holiness means there is no limit to who He is, He is completely separate and beyond our ability to fully understand and contain. That means every other dimension is like that. Another way to describe God's holiness is he's like no other. There's no way to fully contain or describe how holy he is. But listen to this. His holiness affects all of his other attributes. What what are other, other attributes of God? How about the love of God? What does that mean about the love of God? It means we can't fully contain or understand how deep and rich the love of God is. He's not only holy like no other. Listen, he is also loving like no other. How about the patience of God, the long suffering of God? That's a quality. That's an attribute. And when you come to God in the midst of failure or struggle, and you say, oh God, I don't know if you can take me back just this one more time. What are you saying? You think God's limited in his... Love and long-suffering for you? Oh no, His love and long-suffering are like no other. You can't put any limit on it. So this is a very powerful thing. It means that everything great about God has no limit. I need a God like that in my life. I don't know about you. Maybe you're still doing pretty well spinning your own wheels and flapping your own wings. I'm not. I crashed and burned a long time ago. Spiritual basket case. I need a God whose patience and love and wisdom are like no other. Now, how does that affect you? Two ways. Number one, it should bring awe back into your worship. It should bring wonder back into your worship. If you understand that everything that you know about God is incomplete. Everything that the Bible teaches us is is revelation that he's put into words that we can understand now. But then when we get to heaven, it'll be beyond words. He is far greater than your highest estimate of him. And when you come into his presence, you're in the presence of someone you can't even begin to fully appreciate and understand. Are you going to come trivially into worship or are you going to come with awe before the God who is beyond what you can ever imagine? See, today, we, uh, we run through the veil. We shove that bad boy aside And we waltz into the presence of God in presumption, don't we? Triviality, making it all about us and not even understanding the awesome person we're before. Dr. J.I. Packer talked about this loss of worship in our society. He says we've lost the meaning of majesty. We've lost the meaning of majesty, he says. Majesty is a word which the Bible uses to express the thought of the greatness of God, our maker and our Lord. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty, Psalm 93 declares. But this is knowledge which Christians today largely lack. And that's one reason why our faith is so feeble and our worship so flabby. Did you know that flabby was a theological word? Yeah, it is, and I think it needs to get more airplay than, than not today because so much of our encounter and understanding of God is flabby and feeble. He says, we are modern people, and modern people have as a rule small thoughts about God. What a statement. He says, modern people have as a rule small thoughts about God, but they cherish great thoughts about themselves. Today, vast stress is laid on the thought that God is personal, but this truth is so stated as to leave the impression that God is a person of the same sort as we are. Often weak, sometimes inadequate, ineffective, a little pathetic, but this is not the God of the Bible. Our personal life is a finite thing. It's limited in every direction in space and time and knowledge and power, but God is not so limited. Why is holy? He is eternal, infinite, and almighty. He has us in His hands, we never have Him in ours. Let me repeat that. He has us in His hands, we never have Him in ours. One of the great sins of our current Christian society is we are constantly redesigning and dumbing down God to an image that is comfortable to us and useful to us. He has us in His hands. We never have Him in ours. Like us, He is personal, but unlike us, He is great. He is majestic. That's what we miss in worship. That's what we miss in personal prayer. That's what we miss when we're before a wonderful and holy God. But that's what the Scripture says is true about a God who is beyond everything we can understand. Hebrews 12 calls us to what true worship is. Verse 28, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And listen to this. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship. What's acceptable worship? He explains it with reverence and awe. So there's acceptable worship and unacceptable. Much of our worship today, which is totally man-designed and felt need-driven and emotionally captured and personally involved, is unacceptable to Him because it doesn't have reverence and awe. And then the next phrase, verse 29, why should we have reverence and awe? For our God is a consuming fire. He's holy. He is above us. We are privileged to approach Him. And again, that's because of the passion. So the first thing that is true about the holiness of God is he's separate. He's beyond everything we can imagine in position. He exists in a category of being that is all his own. And if you don't get that, you won't worship him reverently. You'll use him selfishly. So this should bring awe back into your worship. Secondly, it should affect you by bringing confidence back into your prayers. I mentioned this earlier. If God's person is far beyond what we could ever imagine. Let me put it this way. If God's holiness means he is out of this world in terms of all his greatness. Listen, that means that every dimension of his person has that limitless nature. And so here you are with your problems, your challenges, your needs, your situations. You can come and you can have confidence when you pray. You can now begin to pray like this. O Holy Lord, as your child, I am calling on your out-of-this-world power to provide for my needs in my home. O Holy God, as one of your children, as I look at the shaking of the nations and society in the future, and I have free-floating anxiety that rises up All the time, because I'm worried about what's coming. Oh God, I call on your out of this world sovereign plan. And I trust in it for my children and grandchildren and my very being. Do you see how that can change your prayer life? You're no longer calling on a God who's captured by situations. You're talking about talking to a God who's beyond all situations. He's holy His power is out of this world. His love is out of this world. When you come with a personal failure and you're saying, Oh God, I can now come as your holy child having this personal moral failure in my life, but I'm calling on your out-of-this-world mercy, Oh God, over what I've done. That's confidence. A great view of God builds great confidence in prayer. I hope you understand it. We're going to rush now as we always do. The second... Our holy God is, is separate as well in his person. What does that mean? I've put it in a phrase for you. He is infinitely perfect in every way. He defines what it means to be without sin. He is infinitely perfect in every way. In this way, the traditional understanding of holiness is also true. It is true that when we think of a holy God, it means he's without sin. He's infinitely perfect, and he defines what it means to be without sin. Now, this is a big wake-up call for many people in the Christian faith today and in the world today who believe that ultimately God needs to adjust to their standards. True? Oh, no, no. He doesn't meet a standard. Listen, he is the standard. He's holy. That's why the passion needed to happen little hint. And where does this appear in Scripture? Psalm 96 in verse 9. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. Tremble before Him. Why tremble? Because of His perfect purity and the fact that we are not. This is why Isaiah, if you go back to the passage I opened with in verses 2 and 3, saw the seraphim, these mighty angels that are stationed at the corners of the, the temple of the throne of God in heaven, why they each had six wings, and they covered their faces even though they're perfect beings, and they covered their feet even though they're perfect beings as a sign of God's infinite perfection, His holiness. He is the standard. He's a standard they could not hope to meet. They are in, the, in His presence by His mercy. Isaiah said, I saw his perfection and all they could do was call out Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh is the Lord of hosts. He's perfect. Now, how does that affect you? Well, it should remind you of the God you will face unless Christ has faced him for you. Let me repeat that. God's perfect moral holiness should remind you that he is the God you will face unless Christ has faced him for you. And, of course, the principle of my message now comes out, the great purpose of the passion was that Jesus Christ did face the holiness of God for you, didn't he? But so many people are oblivious to this today. I would say that the greatest myth that secular people that I meet hold if they don't outwardly deny the supernatural and say we're just material events, we're biological entities that will, when, when the brainwaves stop, who you are stops, that's still the rarity. Most people I meet in the secular world do believe there's another dimension, do believe there's an eternal beyond this one. They do. And they do believe that there must be a creator who powers it. And so I asked them, What do you believe you'll say when you meet this creator on what they call the other side? And you know where I'm going. The the, the most often repeated belief is that they will explain their life and their behavior to this creator and they will look at the balance of their good deeds and how in their mind it overbalances their bad deeds and that they will walk into eternity having negotiated with God and shown that on balance they were good people. Isn't this the mythology of our society? And yet everything we've just learned about God says that's an impossible encounter. No, you don't set the standard. He is the standard. A.W. Tozer wrote about this. He said, The vague and tenuous hope that God is too kind to punish the ungodly has become a deadly drug that has dulled the conscience of millions. You You could call people today, our country, an ambient nation when it comes to really accepting what eternity holds. We've, the people have put themselves to sleep with the idea that they create the standard and that they'll negotiate their way into the presence of a kindly God. I'm sorry, God cannot contradict himself. He must be holy, you see. Some people say, like Voltaire the great atheist did on his deathbed, a priest came to him and says, would you like to confess your sins? And he says, get out of my room. I don't need to confess any sins. When I see God, he'll forgive me because that's his job. Later, Voltaire, in the very last words of his life, saw that that wasn't going to happen, but it was too late for him. So how does it affect you? It should remind you of the God you'll face unless Christ has faced him for you. But, of course, you understand my message, and that, that is that he did face him for you quickly. Now, the third way in which God is separate is in perspective. What does that mean? Another phrase I've put in for you, because God is holy. That's his condition for anyone who wants to exist in his presence. It's kind of the logical end of the argument, isn't it? He's holy and exalted. He's perfect morally, and he's exalted beyond anything we can ever imagine. His holiness has to be maintained he doesn't let you set the standard. He is the standard. Therefore, holiness is the condition for anyone who wants to exist in his presence. And that's always been the case. Eons ago, God created angels, didn't he? Was there a fall of the angels? Led by who? Lucifer, the son of the morning, who's now called Satan, rebelled against the purity of God. And he swept a third of the angels from in heaven into that deception. And what did God do with the angels of sin? Who sinned according to Jude and Titus? he immediately banished them from his holy presence. And he prepared a place for them separated from his presence. It's called hell. Now, God keeps that standard. When people choose not to come to him, when they choose to reject Jesus Christ, what happens to them ultimately? The Bible says they're sent to the same place prepared for the devil and his angels out of the presence of God. Why? Because to be in God's presence in his universe, you must be holy. And we see this in Scripture. I mentioned it to you in Passion Week. Habakkuk the prophet, one thirteen. You, O God, are of purer eyes than to see evil, and you cannot look at wrong. So many other places described it. How does that affect you? And I. Well, the more you see who he is in his holiness, and the more you see who you are in your sinfulness, the one creates the other. This is why it's a tragedy in modern preaching when preachers never talk about the holiness of God, when preachers never describe the depth of of human sin, when when preachers never talk, talk about the reason for the veil. They describe our relationship with God as a therapeutic one in which we both just need to come into a deeper understanding of each other, that what separates us from God is not sin. It's just a lack of our knowledge of how good he is. That's a complete theological fabrication. What separates us from God is his holiness, and it's why the passion had to come. The more you see how holy God is, the more you then see how sinful you are, and the more you will be driven to seek a solution to that crisis. Remember I said on Good Friday evening, there is a a great moral confrontation coming at the end of your life if you don't know Christ. It is a confrontation, confrontation between your life and the holy standard of God, and you will lose. But... The passion of the Christ was what I called a great moral intervention. Remember I used that word? In which Christ came and took the wrath of that holy God for you in those dark hours so that you do not need to face His holiness without the grace of Christ. Because you see, what God's holiness demanded, His grace provided. Oh, what a statement. What God's holiness demanded, His grace provided through Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, God the Father made Him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. How righteous do you need to be in heaven? Do you just need to have a few more good deeds to outrule your bad? No. How righteous do you need to be? As righteous as God's Son. How righteous are you in Christ? As righteous as God's Son. You see, that's the power of the passion. That's the reason behind it all. Well, let me finalize this with some practical descriptions. How do you practice this purpose behind the passion? Why does it matter in your life? Two things. Number one, if you're a Christian, it can alter your walk. Today, I've told you about the holiness of God. It's a holiness that doesn't dim once you become a Christian. It's a holiness that now God wants to show through you to a dark world. This is why 1 Peter 1.15 says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Wow. Unusual statement to make in our modern Christian culture, because I think a lot of us have a Bible that actually says, you also are to be happy in all your conduct. <laughs> We've taken the U version of the Bible a little too far. And you say, well, that sounds like legalism. It sounds like I'm pressed into being perfect. No, it's, it's not about performing. It's about growing and reflecting who Jesus is in your life. Because when they see the character of Christ in your life, people are getting a glimpse of his holiness. Just a little glimpse, but an entrancing glimpse. He's not interested in you becoming perfect. He's perfect. He wants his perfection shown through you as you walk with him and trust him and worship him and go to him and honor him in the moral moments and in the public moments of your life as you seek to be more like his son. His son is holy and the world sees it and God's call on your life is satisfied. That's what it's all about. He saved you because he wants to show his holiness through you. Don't be satisfied with what's called cultural holiness, being a little bit holier than the next Christian, you know. (laughs) That next Christian isn't your standard. Remember, we don't set the standard. He is the standard. It's becoming increasingly like him. Don't buy down and say you're fine. By the way, you don't drift toward holiness either. It's something you must be in the intentional pursuit of. I wish I had time to read D.R. Carson's work on that. But you don't drift toward it. You move toward it as you seek to submit more areas of your life to Christ. You say, how do I do that? Does it mean I have to give more? Does it mean I have to find a ministry? Does it mean I have to start eliminating some things of my life? No, I, I would say that the great secret to holiness is heart occupation with God, heart occupation with Him, being with Him in worship, being with Him and giving over your heart and your life, and allowing Him to be so much more of who you're caught up with that who you're caught up with begins to be seen in who you are. Worship is the driver of how we grow in holiness here's the last if you're not a christian understanding all of this can alter your world and here we get back to the great purpose behind the passion you see remember we started with the veil didn't we i described that as i began the great veil that was when jesus said it was it is finished what happened to that thick impenetrable veil was it torn in two was it yes suddenly from top to bottom One author put it this way, so the presence of God remained shielded from man behind a thick curtain during the history of Israel. However, Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross changed that. When he died, the curtain in the Jerusalem temple was torn in half from the top to the bottom. Only God could have carried out such an incredible feat because the veil was too high, 60 feet high for human hands to have reached it, and too thick the width of a man's hand for a man to have torn it. It was torn from the top down, meaning this act must have come from above. As the veil was torn in that mighty moment, the Holy of Holies was exposed in the temple. God's presence was now accessible to all. Shocking as this may have been to the priests ministering in the temple that day, it is indeed good news to us as believers, because we know that Jesus' death has atoned for our sins and made us right before God. The torn veil illustrated Jesus' body, broken for us, opening the way for us to come to God. As Jesus cried out, it is finished on the cross. He was indeed proclaiming that God's redemptive plan was now complete. The ultimate offering had been sacrifice. What holiness demanded, grace provided. And that was the great purpose behind the passion. That's the story. It's the often lessened story of the passion. And so as you consider all that I've said to you, do you understand the holiness of God and the mighty work that was done so that what holiness demanded, grace provided? And have you met your Savior? Come to Him as the one who opened the veil for you.